All right, that was, that was special. That was fun to see, just uh, so many young children just having a blast worshiping the Lord. Well, if you'll stand with me this morning as we read the scriptures together. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we pray this morning as we dive into these scriptures together that we would hear from you. Help us to have soft hearts and open ears. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, you may have noticed that I am standing before you barefoot. And I am standing before you barefoot this morning because I have beautiful feet. Not in the literal literal sense, although maybe my wife thinks my feet are beautiful, I don't know. But more so, that the scriptures tell us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul says that in Romans, and he's referencing the book of Isaiah. And the idea is, is that you would have a king out fighting a battle, and when he would win the battle, they would send runners back to the city, and you would see them on the mountains coming, running back to the city with news of victory. So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And the idea, again, is that God has brought victory. His kingdom has come. His rule has been established. And so Paul in the New Testament picks up on this and says, yes, this good news has come. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I stand before you barefoot this morning basically as a reminder that what I am sharing today is good news. Because the things that we're going to cover today are hard. They're some of the hardest passages to really grapple with and deal with because it shines a spotlight on our hearts. And in all honesty, we have failed as a church to live up to what we find today. And we're going to be diving particularly into lust, divorce, oath-breaking. And particularly on the subject of divorce, I know that that is a painful and difficult subject. And Jesus says some very difficult things. And so... Today, I hope to handle these matters tenderly and with grace, but there are hard things that we need to wrestle with. 
And so again, I stand before you barefoot to say that as we walk through these hard things, this is good news. It's good news for us to hear. So that's where we're going. Now, today, we have this idea of, oh wait, I, that is, I forgot to put the title in. Let me give you the title, <laughs> which I actually don't even have. Oh, here we go. Not looking for the exit. I never put the title in my actual notes, uh, but you have it in, your, in your, uh, your worship order. Not looking for the exit. And what do I mean by that? Well, imagine you're on an airplane, and you know when you get on an airplane, before you take off, they give you the safety briefing that nobody listens to, but one of the things that they say is, hey, Take note of the closest exit, and the closest exit may be behind you. You know, they say that. Most of the time, we aren't looking for the exit. We're sleeping through that safety briefing because we don't really care, and it's just kind of, you know, you've been on a plane once, you've been on a thousand times. It's like, okay, whatever. I don't think the exit's really going to mean much to me if we crash, but, you know, it is what it is. But here's our reality. When we look at the scriptures or what we find today, when it comes to lust, divorce, oath-breaking, we have a heart that wants to look for an exit. We're looking for a way out. We aren't satisfied with where we are, so we're roaming, our eyes are roaming around looking for an exit, looking for a way out. And in this today's passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus calls us to be a particular type of person. I want you to hear, this morning I'm not saying just don't look for an exit, although that is the title. Jesus talks about being a particular type of person. To be someone who just takes a nap during that safety briefing, who's about something entirely else. Now, we have been in this series, Greater Righteousness, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen kind of uh, uh, last week, the thesis for really the whole uh, sermon that Jesus gives is found in chapter 5, verse 20, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, in the scribes and, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to have a greater righteousness. And he's not talking about a quantitatively different, greater righteousness, like you have to be up here, but a qualitatively different type of righteousness. Something that comes from the heart and goes to the mouth and the hands. A whole person righteousness, not just an external that looks a particular way, but a whole person way of being. And that's the way God is. You, therefore, must be perfect. And that word's also, it's more of like a wholeness. You must be whole or perfect as your heavenly Father is whole or perfect. Okay, we saw all of that, well, not last week, two weeks ago when when I was preaching. And we're in a section of the sermon where we're seeing six examples of this greater righteousness with regards to the law. Six examples of this greater righteousness. And the structure of it works where Jesus gives a quotation, generally from the Old Testament, you have heard that it was said, And then he goes on to give an interpretation. He doesn't just throw out what was said, but he expands upon it and says, here's what this means. Here's what's going on. And then he usually gives a practical application following those things. And all of them emphasize letting your heart, mouth, and hands all align. Don't just be one type of person on the inside and then shiny on the outside, but be someone who is wholly devoted to the Lord. All right, so let's dive into our passage today. And a little warning today, we're going to be a little longer than normal because we have a lot to cover and this is hard ground. But starting in verse 27, he dives into, you know, last time we looked at murder and now he's into adultery. So commandment number seven. (laughs) Sorry, I had to think of it in my head. So we go from murder to adultery. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, there's this, it's not just enough to abstain from adultery on the outside. Oh, I didn't sleep around, so I'm, I'm okay before God. He says, no, your whole heart. What are you doing with your eyes? What are you thinking about? Do you have a whole heart that says, oh, I'm not going after that. Now, today, I'm not saying, just stop it. Just stop lusting, church. I mean, good luck with that. That's not very helpful. But instead, I think Jesus, and what I hope to convey today too, is he's saying, be a different type of person. And that's a process. Don't be like this. Don't be a person who is clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. Jesus is inviting us into a different way of living, into being a particular type of person. So this first thing that he's inviting us into, you see on on your, your notes that I have, Jesus invites us to be a particular type of person who, so invites you to be a person, and here's the first one, pursues sexual wholeness. Jesus isn't saying, hey, just don't lust. Come on, guys, just, just stop it. Just cut it out. Just don't do that. No, he's actually giving us an orientation and saying, you need to pursue sexual wholeness, where your whole body is in line with your heart. You don't have a heart that's sexually broken and an external that's sexually whole, but instead sexually whole all the way through. And we'll talk about what I mean by sexual wholeness in a minute. But before that, I want to talk about our current reality as a church. And these are hard, hard realities. We live in a sex-obsessed culture, and lust reigns supreme. Lust opposes love. We often tend to confuse the two. Like, I I love this person or this thing or whatever. But it's really lust, because lust is a desire that's centered on myself and saying, I want what I want. I want my good over their good, or I want my desires to be fulfilled over them. Love looks to the interests of others, Lust only looks to the interests of myself. And we live in a culture that's all about lust, whether it's hookup culture or partying or pornography or what have you. It's all about me. Me getting what I want. Me pursuing the path that I want to be on. I want to take a moment and talk about the reality of pornography use. Back in 2020, um, one study was done, and it found this. These numbers are staggering. 91.5%, that's 91.5%, 9 out of 10 men, and 60.2% of women, that's 2 out of 3 women, or 6 out of 10 women, they reported consuming pornography in the last month. That's in 2020. So that's almost all men and most women in the culture as a whole. You may say, okay, that's the culture as a whole out there, but what about the church? The numbers in the church are not that much better. Here's from a study from uh, both Barnett and Covenant Eyes. 68% of church-going men, 68% of church-going men, again, that's about two out of every three men, view porn on a regular basis. Two out of every three church-going men. And women aren't exempt. 33% of women in the church, that's one out of every three, search at least once a month. But also, here's another staggering statistic, 87% of women have viewed pornography. Those are sobering statistics because they reveal 
that most of us are dealing with this issue. And as we come to this passage today, and Jesus talks about lust, the reality is that is working its way out in the church in horrendous ways. Because we put on a shiny exterior, but the reality is is that most of us, most of us sitting in this room, this is part of our life that we are dealing with. And trust me, I have walked this road. This is part of my own story. And it has been a long time of walking and finding freedom. So I stand before you here today to also say there is hope. And that I know it may feel like there is not an escape. And that there is no hope. But Christ offers hope. There is freedom. You aren't alone either. I share on those statistics, one, to bring the reality, but also to say if this is part of your life, you're not alone. Chances are, somebody sitting to your left or to your right is dealing with it as well. So you are not alone. And the church ought to be a place where we talk about these things. And we come clean, and we find healing, and we find hope. Jesus invites us to be a people. He invites you to be a person who pursues sexual wholeness. And there's hope. Now, by sexual wholeness, I don't mean strictly freedom from, pornog- from pornography. Freedom from pornography is not synonymous with sexual wholeness. I think that's part of the story. But you can avoid pornography and not be sexually whole. Jesus talks about this. You can avoid external behavior and still have a heart that is broken. Here's what I mean by sexual wholeness. It's not just abstaining externally from adultery, but it's having a heart that has rightly ordered desires. A heart with rightly ordered desires. Basically, a heart that is pursuing something right, pursuing Jesus. It's looking to Jesus, not looking for the exit, looking for something else, something outside of what God has ordained for me and put in the good boundaries. But it's looking to Christ. That's sexual wholeness. So let's talk more about what Jesus actually, kind of the the examples that Jesus gives. Because he gives these stark, hard examples. And, you know, we talk about, hey, we need to have sexual wholeness. And you might say, well, how can I just stop lusting? How, How does that work? Good luck. I mean, I don't know about you, but if someone just said, hey, you know, just stop, just stop doing that. You'd be like, you're crazy. I I can't. I don't know what to do. And I think Jesus gives us a direction to go in of how our hearts can experience healing and find wholeness. And I think ultimately he's saying, do you take sin seriously? Is your heart oriented in a direction that says, yes, this sin over here is not something I want? Not that I'm free of sin and that sin has no presence in my life whatsoever, but that I take it seriously and I want to run the other way as hard and fast as I can. Jesus uses hyperbole a lot in this, this, these examples, these six examples of a greater righteousness with regards to the law. Last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw this kind of absurd idea of leaving your offering on the altar and then heading back to Galilee, a several-day journey away. It's an absurd, kind of hyperbolic, an exaggerated example of what this looks like. And so Jesus here talks about gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand in case it causes you to sin. But here's why we know that Jesus is telling us, or using hyperbole and not actually commanding us to do those things. Because doing those things does not solve the problem of the heart. 
You can gouge out your eye and cut off your hand and still lust. Does not solve the problem. But Jesus is saying, do you take sin seriously? Do you see sin in your life and say, okay, what will it take to run the different, a, a different direction away from that sin? You see, sexual wholeness is having a posture of moving towards something, having that laser-focused perspective of, yes, I want this over here. Jesus is asking, are you willing to go to the lengths needed in order to see this sin dealt with? A lot of times we're not willing to go to those lengths. We see how much it costs, and we say, no thanks. No, I need my phone, my smartphone, so I'm not willing to go to the lengths it would actually take to get healing. But Jesus is asking us, do you care? I want to give you kind of quickly three steps on the path to sexual wholeness. Three steps. Because again, becoming a type of person isn't about, you know, you don't, I don't just do stuff and then become a type of person. However, as I do things, God begins to work in my heart. And who I am does change. So this morning as I preach, again, I'm not just saying just do this and everything's fine. But as I preach, I'm saying become a type of person. And one of the ways we move towards becoming that type of person is taking these steps of faith. Okay, so there's a difference there, of kind of the angle I'm coming from. But here's the first step, is look to Jesus. That's always step one. Look to Jesus and his love. You see, Jesus says, you know, hey, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. But here's the reality. We don't have to punish ourselves because of our sin. Because Christ has already taken that beating for us. We don't have to cut off our hands because Christ was already cut off for us. When I see just how much love Christ has for me, it changes everything. Our first step, see his love. See him dying on the cross for you and for me. Because he loved us that much. And we don't have to do things to earn his love. We don't have to be free from adultery in order for him to love us. He loved us first. That is step one. When I see Christ's love, what it does is then it enables me to start moving towards step two. And step two is coming out of the dark. Come out of the dark. See, we have a tendency to hide. Adam hid as soon as he sinned. He and Adam and Eve, or Adam and Eve covered themselves in fig leaves, but also hid as the Lord came walking in the cool of the day. We have that same tendency. When we are confronted with our sin, we hide it, especially in the sexual realm. We are so ashamed of it, and so we say, I can't let anybody know about this. But when I see that Jesus truly does love me, then it frees me to be open about it with other people, to confess. And here's what it does. It costs us when we confess. You know, Jesus talks about cutting off our hand, gouging out our eye. We're afraid to lose those things. Well, we're also afraid to lose our reputation, our status, the respect that we think people will have or have for us. We're afraid to lose those things. And so we're afraid to bring our sin out into the open. But only when I sacrifice those things, when I cut off my respect, when I cut off my ability to think people, or the ability for me to present myself as perfect, only then, only then, can I actually experience healing. Because James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healing requires confession. That's where mercy and grace are actually found. When we confess and people extend that mercy and grace to me. 
remember one time having to confess pornography use to my wife and the mercy and grace that she extended to me many years ago when that happened sticks with me to this day because it's probably the most tangible example of Christ's mercy and grace I've ever received. And had I not confessed, I would have never been able to receive it. Now, at the same time I say confession, I encourage you, be discerning. Find a close group of trusted people, uh, men with men, women with women, that you can confess these things to. Somebody you trust, somebody that will have your best interests at heart. Find that safe group of peers. Confess. We have a tendency to keep things in the dark and try to pay for it ourselves. Like, we beat ourselves up emotionally. We punish ourselves in our hearts, like, oh, you're so rotten, you're so terrible, look at what you did again. We punish ourselves thinking that that somehow earns God's favor. But we already have God's favor. We already have his forgiveness. He's asking us to come into the light and experience his favor and forgiveness. With our sin, we don't need to bring a wallet to pay for it. We need to bring a flashlight to shed light. You don't need a wallet. You need a flashlight for your sin. Now, here's the third step. As you are confessing and interacting with that group of people, and by the way, if if you have uh, uh, pornography, uh, I'll call it addiction, if that is part of your life, it's, it's a complicated thing and it takes time. Just doing these three things isn't this magic band-aid that's going to all of a sudden fix it. It is a long process. It's a long process. But it is the beginning of that process. Because the third step is, is when you're in that group and you're confessing, then you're able to start actually identifying the idols that you have in your life and the reason why you are turning towards lust, pornography, whatever it is. Because you're going there to get something. There's something that that is offering to you, and it's not just pleasure. That's certainly part of it, and your brain, neurochemically speaking, is also even craving that. There's a dopamine hit that you're getting from it. So there's even a physical component in your body that's going on that needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, as you're dealing with those things, you start asking the real questions of what am I going after? Why do I turn to this? And as you're confessing that to people, they're able to help you process through it You're able to start seeing how Christ is better than whatever pornography and lust is offering. And you're able to start experiencing healing. As you do all of these things, it's like exercise. Jesus is basically saying, hey, don't be a lustful person, which is almost the same thing as saying, hey, be strong. It's like, well, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not strong, all right? I'm not like Q, who's like really strong and just was like almost born that way, okay? I mean, he he also works out and lifts weight, but you know, like I'll never be his size. But Jesus is saying, like, be strong. Well, how do, you, how do you get strong? It's day by day exercising, lifting day by day, eventually to the point where you are strong and you are able to do what he calls you to do. So as Jesus calls us to be a people that, doesn't, that, do, that don't lust, that starts with us taking step by step in the direction towards Christ and away from lust. And over time, our hearts change. Our minds change. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We become different people. And then at one point, we can look at our lives and say, oh my goodness, I am different. And I haven't arrived yet. None of us will ever get to say that. But we are moving towards sexual wholeness. Sexual wholeness. So, just kind of a big application for all of this. If if you hear one thing, it's this. Just don't hide lust. 
not just pornography use, but any sort of lust. Just bring it out in the open. Be real about what's going on. Don't relish it. Don't like, oh, look how broken I am. Isn't that awesome? Be broken over it. Say, Lord, here I am. If pornography isn't your issue, what is your issue? What do you need to bring into the light and share with others? All right. Let's talk about where we're going the second point. Getting to the hard stuff with divorce and oath-breaking. I've kind of put divorce and oath-breaking together under this. And it's Jesus invites you to be a person who does not look for the exit. Hence the title of our sermon. Jesus invites you to be a person who does not look for the exit. Not looking for the exit. So let's kind of divide these into two. Talk about divorce first and then oath-breaking second. Jesus gives a really short kind of commentary in verses 31 and 32. You know, telling people, hey, don't divorce your wives. But, or Moses says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, there's three questions that this raises. You might be like, okay, what's, what's actually going on here? First off, what's the Bible reference? Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. See, many Jews of Jesus' day were taking what's written in that verse and twisting this to allow for divorce for any reason. Because in this verse, Moses says, if someone finds any indecency in his wife, he may divorce her. Now, here's the catch. Moses is not actually giving a paradigm for when divorce is, ought to happen. He's actually answering a question of kind of a very specific circumstance. Basically, the circumstance is, is if, if a man divorces his wife, and that woman marries another guy, and he divorces her, can the first guy marry her? Okay, that's the question that Moses is addressing. He's not really addressing when is a divorce legitimate and when is it not legitimate. But Jews of Jesus' day were kind of taking Deuteronomy 24.1 and using it as the divorce proof text. Some were taking it so far to say that indecency meant if my wife cooked a meal that I don't like, I can divorce her. And so Jesus kind of comes on the scene and is like, no, 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 no. You guys are getting Moses all wrong. That is not what Moses was talking about. That's not the heart. Instead, he says, that's not how marriage works. What's going on in your heart? So the first question, what's the Bible reference? You know, Deuteronomy 24.1. The second one, what is Jesus saying about marriage and divorce? Because he gives a much stricter view, and he's basically saying the only legitimate grounds for divorce or sec- is sexual immorality. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, gives us another legitimate grounds for divorce, and that is when a non-believing spouse leaves a believing spouse. Then the believing spouse is free, is no longer bound to that spouse. Those are the two biblical reasons, or biblical grounds, for divorce. So Jesus is giving this strict view on marriage and divorce. And the third question is, well, then why is marrying a divorced woman adultery? He's basically saying, look, if you've had an illegitimate divorce that wasn't from sexual immorality, then you're still married. And the woman is going to need to be supported, so she's probably going to remarry, and because of that, you have made her an adulteress. Because now she shouldn't have married that person. And then if you remarry, because you're still legitimately married to this other person, you commit adultery. So that's kind of the logic flow that Jesus is using there. So what we learn about marriage through all of this is that it's designed to be permanent. And that the only legitimate grounds is for dissolving it is sexual immorality, and then later on in 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't just dissolve a marriage because you don't want it. 
but what's your heart? Again, he's like, don't be looking for just a way out, but do you have a heart that loves your spouse? You can't just twist what Moses says and use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Don't be looking for loopholes in the law. Here's a sad truth. The church has not spoken well on this at all. Many pastors were afraid to talk about divorce because divorce is a reality in our churches, in our world, in our culture, and I even know in our church that divorce is a reality. I know this is a painful, painful subject for many of you in this room, whether you've been divorced yourself or perhaps your parents have walked through a divorce, and that's one of the reasons why I'm barefoot in front of you, because this is hard. And the truth is, with no-fault divorce existing in our country, that the church did not speak out strongly enough against that. And we don't speak strongly enough against divorce today. And we don't call people to account. We don't hold people uh, under discipline when they pursue divorce wrongly. And because of that, we have lost our witness on marriage. One of the reasons the culture does not listen to us when we speak to same-sex marriage is because we don't speak about marriage the way God has designed it. We're too afraid. And guys, I'm afraid. I want people to like me. But the truth is, this is what Jesus says. He says hard things about divorce and marriage in general. This gets picked up in Matthew chapter 19. He actually explains this even more. It kind of goes into way more detail is what he means. And the disciples' reaction to this is like, this is hard news. What am I supposed to do with this? And I know that there are people in this room and you may be wondering, well, what if my former divorce wasn't biblically legitimate and now I've remarried? Pastor Mark, what do you think? I want you to know there is grace. There is grace. Jesus is not asking us for moral perfection. If divorce is part of your background, part of your life, he's not asking us for moral perfection. He's asking for brokenness and contrition. You see, if you've remarried, you have made new vows with a new spouse. And it's not godly to throw those vows away. God calls you to uphold those vows. Maybe you shouldn't have gotten married. If your divorce was illegitimate, then yeah, you shouldn't have. But, but, there's a new thing. And God is a redemptive God. And I firmly believe that through our brokenness, through our sin, through making errors, God still uses that brokenness. And your new marriage can be beautiful and whole and good in the eyes of God. In the same way that a child born out of wedlock comes from circumstances that are not ideal and are not good, that child itself is good. God calls life good. And so your marriage, even if you shouldn't have done it in the first place, there is grace. There is grace. I want you to hear that from me clearly. I do not stand here and condemn you. Now, here's some just application with this. Because we can talk about divorce all day, but what's the opposite of that? What does it look like to have a heart that's pursuing the right things? It's pursuing our spouse. Pursue oneness with your spouse. Pursue oneness with your spouse. Don't just avoid divorce. Don't just be like, well, I haven't divorced him, so I've obviously upheld the letter of the law. That's the exact thing Jesus is speaking against. 
If you're like, well, I've done my Christian duty and we are still legally married, but you don't love your spouse and you don't pursue your spouse, you are guilty of what Jesus is talking about right here. Guilty. May we be a people who love our spouses so that the thought of divorce is terrifying, not because of the social implications and not because it's bad, because we think, oh my goodness, I want to go after what God desires. May I love my spouse. A question you can ask is, where am I tempted to think that someone else would be a better spouse? Where am I tempted to think that? Because I know for every single last one of us in this room that is married, there's probably one area where like, yeah, I just wish my spouse wasn't this way, and I wish they were like this person over there. Just ask yourself that question. All right, let's, let's go quick. Let's get through, through O's. This is the second part of not looking for the exit. In the O's, there's a, a background, a cultural background you need to know about. Uh, in Judaism at this point in time, there was a tier system of oaths. And it was really complicated. And we know this from the rabbinic writings of around Jesus' time. Basically, if there was an oath on this thing over here, it was less binding than this thing here, which was less binding than this thing over here. And so it was like, okay, if I need to say yes to something, and I need to make an oath, but it doesn't need to be particularly strong, and I need a way to wiggle out of it, Okay, what can I swear on? Okay, I can swear on this thing over here where I'm invoking God in some way, shape, or form. Like, instead of the altar, I'll swear on the money or maybe the other way around. All of these things, like, had a different value in how strong they were. And Jesus takes that and throws it in the garbage. He's like, no, that's not what we need to be going after. All of these are invoking God. So, Jesus' point is to be the type of person who follows through? Let your yes be yes. Your no, no. If you need to give a no, give a no, a yes, yes. Now, is Jesus prohibiting oaths? Because he seems to say, you know, well, he says right there, you know, hey, well, you know, don't, don't do anything more than this. Again, he's using hyperbole, and we see God himself swearing often. He swears by his own name. We see oaths in the Old Testament. Even a covenant is an oath. So I don't think Jesus is saying, no, don't make an oath. I think Jesus is very clearly saying this way that you're trying to get out of your oaths, make your oaths meaningless. Stop it. Just be a type of person that can be accepted on your word. You can do everything externally. You can keep all your oaths and still be guilty of swearing falsely by having a heart that looks for a way out. Jesus says, no, stick with where you are. Here's one application for this, and I I think this is particularly relevant to uh, our younger people in the room. Don't be noncommittal. We used to have FOMO, fear of missing out. The new thing is FOBO, fear of a better opportunity. One of the things that uh, our younger generation struggles with is saying yes to something because what if something better comes along? Do you trust that if you say yes to something, that God will honor that and that it will be good. Yeah, something better might come up, but do you believe that God is faithful and that the path he has you on is good and that all things work together for the good of those who love him? Do you believe that? We can make commitments and go with them because we have a faithful God. We don't have to worry about something better coming along because even if something does, God's called us to be faithful, not have the most exciting and amazing whatever. So let's commit and go with it. Now, 
both in divorce and oath-keeping, how do we not look for the exit? It's one thing for me to stand up here and say, don't look for the exit! But how? I think we, again, need to look to Christ and be reminded that he does not look for the exit in his relationship with us. He never regrets entering into a covenant with us. He doesn't look to divorce us. He is steadfast in his love for us. He is wholly devoted to us. He is not saying, if they do one more thing, I'm out. He's not saying, what's one way that I can justify leaving this relationship? He says, no, I have poured out my blood for you. It is finished. It is final. I love you, period. That is our God. That is our God. Amen? He does not look for the exit. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, and says, all the nations on earth shall be blessed through you, he thought about you and me, and he knew this morning on this day that he would be faithful to that promise. We are here because he is faithful to his promises. He has kept his oaths. And praise be to God, he is not like us and does not look to wiggle out of what he has said. He is fervently, completely, and wholly devoted to us. Okay. I don't have this phrase for you on, on your, your worship order, but if you're trying to put all of this together, it's basically this. Look to Jesus, not to the exit. Look to Jesus. If you want to avoid lust, look to Jesus. If you want to avoid divorce, look to Jesus. Run after him. He'll help you run after your spouse. If you want to keep your oaths, look to Jesus because you'll be reminded of how he has kept his oaths with you. Look to Jesus. Don't look for the exit. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and you are faithful and you are kind. We thank you that you have not looked for an exit in your relationship with us. Help us to be wholly devoted in our marriages and in our word. Father, I pray that we as a people would be sexually whole and we would pursue sexual wholeness. Father, help us to say no to pornography and yes to Christ. May we see healing happen in our church. Help us, Father. We need your grace and your mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name.